Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Cinema Immersion Tank, where we dive into movies that we watch five times in five days. And this week, we have ourselves a doozy with Shane Carruth's Primer. Here's what's going to happen. I'm going to read this. You're going to listen. You're going to stay on the line. And you're not going to interrupt. You're not going to speak for any reason. Some of this you know. I'm going to start at the top of the page. Inside the box, it's like the street. Both ends are cold to set. They took from their surroundings what was needed and made of it something more. How many times do we get time travel movies that can challenge us, provoke a response that is immense and intellectual in scope? Just previously in the cinema immersion tank, we heard about Back to the Future, which is likely the example that most people think of when they think about time travel in movies. It may be due to its massive success as a Hollywood blockbuster, and that it's a comedy at heart, so it's more accessible, or that its iconography has entered into many moviegoers' collective consciousnesses. But how would time travel actually work as a science fiction story? I mean an emphasis on the science of it all, mind you. A movie like Primer reminds me of the line from another time travel trip, Looper, where Bruce Willis stops his younger self, played by Joseph Gordon-Levitt, from expounding on how they can be talking to uh, one another. I don't want to talk about time travel. Because if we start talking about it, then we're going to be here all day talking about it, making diagrams with straws. Caruth's aim with this movie is to talk in as blunt terms as possible in a motion picture experience in 78 minutes, no less, including credits, how time travel really could work. This is meant to be, for time travel, how The Martian is an outer space movie, in a sense. Like, oh, it is fiction, but what if you, excuse me, science the shit out of it all? It's worth noting that Caruth started out in his 20s as a software engineer, and, according to him on the audio commentary, that his father also worked with hardware, so when we see him and a few guys in the first dialogue scene of the movie sitting around a table and mailing out pieces of hardware and envelopes for customers, that even if we don't know what they're doing, we should likely know that they know. It was clear after the first viewing of Primer that someone who worked in some capacity as an engineer made this film, that there is just so much process talk here that it would take someone with this know-how to make it sound plausible. Is it plausible? Hell if I know, but I know Caruth knows it, or has got his actors to that point. I knew going in that this was supposed to be a quote-unquote difficult kind of movie. This sort of reputation can be in one of two groups. Either the film really isn't that difficult, at least depending on the audience, or if it is, it's mostly due to the plot, and that naturally five viewings would just about do the trick. If I couldn't get it all by then, it'd be time to throw in the towel. Cruz doesn't screw around with his audience and expects that you and I and everyone else we know are smart enough to follow along, in a sense. In the first eight minutes, we see Caruth as Aaron and David Sullivan as Abe, along with a couple other guys in shirts and ties, like they'd just come off work doing um, engineer software office things, preparing something in a garage. What are they building in there, to quote Tom Waits? We have a right to know. Actually, we don't. I'm reminded of when my co-host Andrew on our podcast talked about Glengarry Glen Ross 
and how he didn't understand all the terms that the characters spoke about with real estate, but trusted enough that since they knew what they were talking about, that he could follow along just enough. We get thrown right into things as far as these guys building something, a new device that involves putting an object to gain massive amounts of heat in a box. Later I found out through the audio commentary it's supposed to be a superconductor, though on a much smaller scale, which makes sense. And the music is very peculiar as far as being very electronic, piano, synth-driven, as these guys mention lots of science-y tech lingo that you may pick up strands of. After the third viewing, I realized I wouldn't completely get what they were doing at the start of the movie, but we know what they're doing, and what Carruth gets intrinsically is that seeing process, real honest-to-goodness process happen on the screen, guys building things, screwing in objects, seeing that a piece of metal is cut to make a box, that they can make little objects float in a superconductor. The only special effect in the film, by the way, is that neat little bit. And it's an inherently enthralling aspect to see pure process going on. In the first half hour of the film, we see how this process goes from one thing to another, with some trial and error in time that has to pass. Funny, looking back at my notes, I saw after viewing three that I was unsure or unclear if they were specifically trying to make an incubator for fungus, for example, or if they wanted to see if this egg they put into this big metal box is to generate extra heat. But this got me thinking about another connection to movies that I'm not sure Carruth considered, which is Frankenstein. I don't know about book versus movie, but one of the fascinating parts of that story is seeing how the doctor goes through a truly scientifically driven procedure to reanimate the living. And, of course, the consequences from that. In this case, two main characters sort of stumble on time travel, as Abe comes to Aaron one day after months of nothing really happening and finding a fungus has grown on the egg, which has happened in days that is supposed to take years. In short, you won't find a movie that has a more scientific explanation for a phenomenon like going through periods of time, albeit in the past only. There is nothing about going into the future which is oddly never explained except to say, possibly, that there is no way rationally in the world of Primer that it could happen by the logic of the box. And it's about the terms used. Causality, palladium, decagrams. And more to the point, it's about how the characters react to what is happening around them. This is not the sort of wide-eyed, holy shit type of reactions and dialogue about time travel from Marty to Doc, or even how Doc would explain it. But that is the ultimate uh, unique aspect about it. But what about as a piece of filmmaking? Kruth knows how to make this material cinematically engaging on just a visual level without any doubt. A key aspect is his motivation of the camera. When the camera moves on a dolly, which happens often in this film, it's on a character talking or a moment of revelation. When Aaron realizes that Abe wants to push the experiment that involved taking a watch inside of a box and seeing that it moved 1,300 hours in the space of one minute, 1,300 to 1,301, get it, maybe, and make a bigger box to travel in time in, the camera moves around Aaron quickly just before he says the line. When Abe and Aaron are trying to figure on just where to put this larger box for themselves to test in, they are, luckily of course, having a drink of soda outside their trucks just by a storage facility and the camera pans around them to show the storage building, just as Aaron and Abe get to the point of asking where to put them. And I'll get back to this in a moment. Even something as simple as Aaron saying what he would do in a, quote, hypothetical, 
around his wife of what he would do with traveling back to do something in the past, the camera starts moving around him on the line, here's what I would do. And a key shot on the rooftop, where Abe looks down at Aaron sitting in a park, is such an impressive shot that you can't help but think when it first comes, I wonder if this will come back later in the film. Boy, it does. But that revelation, too, is not unmotivated, as it takes on something crucial for the rest of the story. By this point, when he says this, by the way, the two men have used this box to go back many times to do things, one can assume, involved with money. It's at this moment, however, that the story takes a turn. What if you could go back and stop a terrible event from happening, like stopping or causing a moment of violence? It's one thing to go and punch someone in the nose. It's another if you stop someone from using a shotgun in a nighttime party, right? It should be noted, by the way, this movie was shot by Carruth for a reported $7,000, all on 16mm and edited on his computer. On the commentary, one will learn certain things related to that, like actors only had one take or a lot of the sound had to be dubbed in post. That didn't concern me with any of the times I watched the film, per se, except for one key point. Does the story work past being an intellectual experience? Did Carruth taking a venture into exploring time travel in a much more concrete, science and engineering driven and hell, even to an extent boring way, go past intellectual interest? Well, yes and no. Yes in that it is such a rich film to experience as far as how it moves visually and how as a sort of experimental film. Not, not as much as his follow-up Upstream Color, which uh, all of you should see, by the way, but certainly more than films at the time were, with the exception of Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. And that the first time watching it, you get a brawl along on such a fluid trip involving the mechanics of how they go from one step of the process to the next that it's easy to take the who of these characters for granted. Like the social network in Inception, the film does not lack characters talking fast about technological aspects of how things work in this world algorithms and shared mind space for example but unlike those films i think the crutch for caruth is that he loses some of the human connection here he may find little things from back to the future series to take for himself the idea of betting on sports is something aaron and abe take on with aplom though to what end is not as clear as for biff but they don't have that series linked to how emotional people can get with this stuff how there can be moments of major highs and major lows for reactions to things like how Michael J. Fox has consistently to revelations from his family or new things that he discovers in the first two movies, uh, particularly. And a part of that, too, is humor. I laughed once in Primer, intentionally. And I didn't laugh unintentionally, I should make that clear. As Abe and Aaron are going through their time travel trips, and their doubles are out and about, and they have to kill time, so to speak, one day they, as they exit a building, Aaron finds he's bleeding out of his ear. Aaron. This isn't normal. Abe. For the machine? Aaron. No, for people. What do you think? It's the machine. I wish the movie had more moments of that. The film is lean and feels like there's barely a moment wasted. But I would have liked another five minutes for something, anything, to add some personality here. Abe and Aaron get more frustrated with this process near the latter part of the story, and there is a sense of growth by the time they part ways. Not growth in the good way, more of a sharper disconnect and terror at the problems they've come to. 
And yet there isn't too much personality-wise that differentiates the two men. Aaron has a wife and daughter, who we barely see. This may be by design of the writing, that Aaron cares much more for his technological escapades than anything as a family man. Which is fine, but I never got a sense either why he would be married. Maybe a scene was missing to show that. And Abe does not. Why near the end does Aaron decide to leave the nondescript city they're in, and Abe stays? There is some slight variation that could lead to say why, but it remains a little too vague, even after five viewings. This is not a question of being confused by plot, but more by character motivation, and that's something a hundred viewings wouldn't be able to really change, at least for me. And the lack of humor, or some, some more acknowledgement of the absurdities that Zemeckis' films, or even Looper knew and had fun with, and that everything is so serious and technical, leaves little room to fully connect with what these guys are saying past the plot points. Or, if many things are meant to be amusing in a deadpan way, I didn't connect with those bits. In other words, Primer does gain some clarity with each excessive viewing. You get to see, for example, that it really is the double of Abe entering the storage facility immediately after the two guys decide to use the very place to make their base of clandestine operations for time travel, which is as clever a touch as I've seen in any film of my life. And it's hard to not admire it completely. It's a stone-cold tale of young guys getting in over their head with the best-laid plans, etc. scenario played out in a chilling way. But did I love the movie? No. It's cold. It's like walking into a cooler with two guys who know so much about what they know and you pick up enough to go along for the ride as an intellectual experience. Intellectually, how your brain follows the pieces of these guys in their white shirts and ties and see things coming together is with a clockwork precision that is uncanny. And considering, again, that it's this filmmaker's first effort, shorter feature length or whatever, it makes for remarkable viewing on technical grounds alone. All the details build logically into a scenario that makes for a drama more than a thriller about trust issues. If only there had been a little more work on the characters past their functions to the plot, or maybe a little more to Sullivan's performance as Abe. He is good, don't get me wrong, but he never feels, shall I say, natural in the part, unlike Carruth, who seems to know this guy, Aaron. Then it would be a brazen work of genius instead of being... good. I care what happens, and yet at a distance. Like, oh hey, those guys over there, cool, very cool. Now for a few odds and ends. 1. There's a character who makes a rather curious appearance late in the story named Thomas Granger, who is mentioned early on at a barbecue Abe and Aaron and the other tech friends are at, and seems to be maybe someone giving the guys funding. Maybe. But one of the mysteries of the story, still after so many viewings, is how he just shows up late one night when Abe and Aaron, after time-traveling so many times, falls after them. Did he time travel too? Did he see them go in to the storage facility? Or maybe run into one of their doubles? This is one of those ambiguities that keeps the film a pleasure to watch on multiple viewings, and I got different viewpoints on different viewings. On the second, I thought it was maybe not Granger at all, that the two guys were simply paranoid. There's dialogue at one point pointing to this. The difference is thinking you're being paranoid or knowing you should be. A great touch for time travel movie of any type. Another viewing, uh, the fourth viewing, I thought that he was on them from the start of being a benefactor of some kind and was trailing them. Or, who knows? 
It's a good piece of storytelling since we are brought along with the characters and the doubt about the situation. Two, I mentioned music earlier. The soundtrack is extremely impressive, and as Carruth also mentions in his commentary, he never scored anything before this. Like The Social Network, the music fits the story, but it has another function of being about the technology of this world, that it fits the milieu. When they're figuring out how to make things in the garage, it has that process music of being steady, but not giving emotional uplift. When things start to get bad in the last 20 minutes of the movie, the music reflects dread and doom, but not to a degree that is distracting. It's a keen, subtle piece of composition that is among the most effective parts of the movie. And three, though not exactly up to par as far as overarching cinematic experiences as BTFF, Looper, and 12 Monkeys, Primer is exemplary for how it delivers the key component with the scenario of the what-if in science fiction and drama in general. Can you change what has come? Perhaps you can. And always the cost is on one's mind, on one's own existence. It may be about sanity. It may be about making your own life better. It may be about taking out Hitler in 1936 for all you know. The consequences are always the crucial monumental point. They're the only point when you boil it down. The what-if-you-could story can't help but be dramatic. What counts ultimately is what else the dramaturgist puts into it. And if Carruth didn't quite succeed with putting characters with more dimension, he did wholesale with a stripped-down, egg-headed take on the form of the story. So, that is Primer. Uh, if you have seen this movie and have any thoughts, uh, it's considered one of those you know, heavy league uh, cult films from uh, the aughts, uh, as the, or the 2000s, I should say. Uh, send us an email to wagesofcinema at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash wagesofcinema and Twitter at wagesofcinema. Uh, if you agree with my assessment, if you disagree, if you want to tell me uh, time travel is, you know, only in Back to the Future and nowhere else, uh, you know, send me a message. Tell me I'm wrong or right or anything like that. Um, and when we come back next week, we'll have more uh, wages of cinema to give you. Money will make money.